Uh, Bob, could you open this in prayer? After Jack sits down. After Jack sits down. Everybody's waiting on you, Jack. No pressure. Father, we thank you so much for what we celebrate today, what you have done for us. Father, we thank you that uh, Friday our sins were put upon Jesus. All of them. He has paid that penalty. And today, uh, just as he said it is finished, the resurrection of the day tells us that you, says, you say amen. It is finished. We have a hope. Thank you so much for that, Lord. And that it's freely given to us. Thank you for your love and grace. Father, we pray that uh, during this day, that this uh, is Dave and Pastor Bob bring forth the word that you would speak to us directly. Father, I pray for those that would come today to hear that uh, they would be prepared to receive from you, that maybe there would be many among visitors that would come to know you personally, to know Jesus in a saving way. We just praise you for this day, Lord. We ask that uh, you would be glorified by all we do here this morning. And we ask that in Jesus' name. So I thought we would uh, start out with Psalm 118 this morning. Psalm 118. So every year since the uh, since the empty tomb was discovered and the Lord presented Himself in glory, um, we have a, a greeting which goes like this: He is risen. He is risen. risen indeed. So Psalm 118 is actually about that. This is a psalm of thanksgiving for the Lord's saving goodness. Whoever would like to get there first is welcome to read out. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let Israel say, his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let the house of Aaron say, his loving kindness is everlasting. Let those who hear the word say, his loving kindness is everlasting. For my distress I called upon the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What man what can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore I shall look with satisfaction on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. They surround, surrounded me, yes, they surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They were extinguished as a fire of thorns. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. You pushed me violently so that I was falling. But the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. The sound of joyful shouting and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does value. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does value. I shall not die but live and tell the works of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness, and I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through it. I shall give thanks to thee, for thou hast answered me, and thou hast become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doom. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, do save, we beseech thee. O Lord, we beseech thee, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has given us life. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. Thou art my God, and I give thanks to thee. Thou art my God, I extol thee. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Amen. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. So, you know, we, Adam, we trace our lineage back to a single man, a single woman. And um, on a terrible day, 
they became separated from the Lord and um, death entered in and we were separated and it wasn't what God's will was and that his will when he created man was to be in communion with man and yet man uh, in the freedom which God had given him gave that up that communion and chose himself instead of God and in that state God was still there. God was still good. But he knew that the only way that he could restore that which was lost was to actually become our salvation. To actually take our sin upon himself and to conquer that death which entered in and held us captive in in bondage. Which is why John so much draws upon the imagery of the Passover. And we just celebrated the Passover um, this last week. Right? And it's a time of festivals in Israel. But nonetheless, there was, it starts with that horrible night. And for us, it begins with the empty tomb. And that's what we're here to celebrate today. I thought we would take a little bit different look where I believe in John chapter 15. Uh, can someone tell me where Pastor Bob got to last week? Anybody here that... He finished working. He finished working? Good. Okay. Um, so I thought we'd take a, a different approach to uh, reading out the theme of John this morning. You know, I, I told you I would read the theme of John, uh, what John is about every week as we move through this study. This week we're going to read the whole of chapter 20 and not just the end of it. So I'm going to take you to chapter 20, verse 1. It says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone had already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrapping, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered and saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping, and so, as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb, and saw two angels in white sitting one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be a gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and to your Father, and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came, announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he said these things to her. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, And when the doors were shut, where the disciples were, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any... They had been retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. 
So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. Jesus came to the doors, having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. He then said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands, and reach here your hand and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So what's John's theme that he's talking about? I, I give it to you every week. We just read it. It's about knowing who Jesus is, knowing that he's the Christ, and what that actually means. It means that he is the one who, because we were eternally separated from God in a place of total, uh, total separation and being lost forever, being dead in sin, he took that sin upon himself. And he conquered the death that was our death and brought eternal life. Only God could do that. So it's about knowing him and coming to believe that he is that one. Just like we read in Psalm 118, when we were reading through Psalm 118, it says, In my distress I called upon the Lord, and the Lord answered me and set me in a large place. The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I will look with satisfaction on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. This is all about what you believe, who you trust for life. And what we find is that the, this, this man, Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, actually becomes our salvation. That's what happened in that time on the cross, that time in the tomb, and the resurrection on the, on the third day. So it's all about the empty tomb. And that that should, in knowing him and believing him and coming to trust him for life, that should affect the way that we live. And that's actually where we're at in John 15 this morning. Now, I uh, actually, uh, I, years ago when I was in seminary and I was uh, serving as an associate pastor at North Baptist Church, in, uh, North, it was North Community Baptist, I can't remember what they called it now, it was North Baptist Church, there was an old building there, um, founded around 1900, and the church was conservative Baptist and then it got mixed with uh, uh, North, uh, North American Baptist which is also conservative in nature. And anyway, so I ended up at this church, and I was associate pastor there, and I was teaching through John 15 on a Sunday morning. And I got to the point about where it talked about being friends with Christ, and that he calls us friends, which is um, God reaching out to us, right? God remained whole when we sinned. He did not become broken or corrupted. But rather, he reached out to us. He became, uh, he called us friend. He welcomed us back into communion. But not um, without um, repair. In other words, it, our sin had to be removed. And we couldn't do that ourselves. right? And in that sense, we join into an intimacy with God. And I was trying to help the congregation understand um, this statement about uh, the intimacy that we have with Christ, and I made the statement that Jesus is not your friend, he's your Lord. Even though he calls us friend, 
It's not the friend in the way that we think about it in the Western culture. He is our Lord. What he did, no man could do. We are not his peer. And that's important to understand, that he is our Lord, and that that's important for our salvation. Well, as soon as I said that Jesus is not your friend, I got a whole bunch of spears in my back. <laughs> because a lot of people want to think of uh, the love of God for us as chummy. <clears throat> it's not. The love of God for us is hard <clears throat> in the sense that um, he died for us, right? That's, in a sense, that's chummy, but it's not, uh, it's, it's different. There's, there's a distinction there. And it has to do with the nature of this intimacy that we have with the Lord and where we are in that relationship, right? And so I, I, uh, as I was opening that teaching, I cited a, uh, a study that was done by a professor of clinical psychology at Harvard University. In fact, a, a book ended up getting written on this. It was called, uh, it was a debate between Freud and C.S. Lewis. And... Uh, uh, the author is a guy by the name of Dr. Nikolai, and um, it was about um, a debate about God, essentially. And C.S. Lewis and Freud were not contemporaries. Freud was born and died before C.S. Lewis um, started his uh, apologetic career as a Christian. But nonetheless, they represented two world voices for two opposing worldviews. One was a materialistic worldview, and one was a Christian worldview, and they're, they're distinctly different. And so this uh, Harvard psychologist went through, and, and he looked at uh, basically the understanding of happiness. What is it that makes people happy? I mean, we all want to be happy, right? If you look at the, what the world tells you is happiness, they're always trying to sell you stuff. They're always trying to tell you something that will make you better, more satisfied. And what Freud said is he had a materialistic understanding of the world. He observed happiness to be a problem of satisfying a person's instinctual wishes. So he was relating it back to biology and instinct. And he recognized that happiness can never be attained because the human appetite is never fully satisfied. That that's the nature of biology. Right? So in his worldview, um, there's this constant craving that is occurring. And so what that does is it leads us to, to buy things. We want to buy happiness. We'll buy it in a lot of different ways. We can buy it through, uh, you know, actual material things. We can try and capture it through immaterial things like uh, yoga and, and, you know, all these different kinds of meditative techniques to become whole. Um, but it doesn't work. And during the last uh, four decades at the time that this has been done, the average U.S. citizen buying power doubled. That means the ability for them to buy happiness had doubled in 40 years. But studies reported that average American happiness is now less. So clearly there's not a statistical correspondence between happiness and uh, buying power. Freud, if you know anything about Freud, he became pessimistic, depressed, and even mentioned drug use as the only effective mood lifter. And so if you know anything about Freud, he was, uh, uh, had all sorts of problems with cocaine and morphine. And in fact, he died in a morphine-induced coma. Right? So here is a worldview presented, which today is foundational in our materialistic understanding of the world. We cite Freud all the time, whether we do it knowingly or not, whether you studied his, his philosophy or not, that's the basis of the materialistic worldview today. C.S. Lewis came along, and he, like Freud, was pessimistic about happiness early in life. So if you've ever read the story, uh, Surprised by Joy, it is the story of C.S. Lewis's um, pursuit of happiness and wholeness and his life story and how he became a Christian. And uh, what happened is he had an early... Uh, or a dramatic change in his worldview early in his 30s, he became a Christian. So he was he had gone uh, a little over 30 years in his life, had all sorts of uh, challenges and trials, uh, including World War I in that period of time. And uh, he, he just couldn't come to terms that basically 
God was real um, and that this Christian worldview had anything in it for him. And so um, what he observed is that what does not satisfy when we find it was not the thing we were desiring. So he recognized the same thing that Freud did and that there's this insatiable appetite that can never be uh, fulfilled, but that which we think will fulfill it is not the thing that we were actually desiring. And as he approached the Christian worldview, Lewis thought that he was coming to a place. And this is a very misunderstanding for us. We think we're coming to a place. Mary thought she was coming to the tomb. Right? But instead, he found that he came to a person. That was what caused him to become a Christian. He was driving down the road, um, and he, you know, just on a normal day, and all of a sudden he realized that Christianity is not a place. It's not about a place. It's not about arriving at, and that's what the material world would tell us, that we have to secure a place. No, it's about a relationship with a person. And it was the joy of finding a person that first surprised him. A joy that marked his life even during times of pain and loss. The joy of knowing Christ to be the source of all he longed for. So that's why I share this because it ties right into what the theme of John is. C.S. Lewis was surprised to find joy in a relationship with God in Christ. And that so changed him that he became one of the great apologists for the Christian faith in the, the 20th century. We cite him today, and I frequently uh, give out uh, C.S. Lewis's work, like I'll talk about the great divorce, which is this, this <coughs> constant craving, the insatiable itch. If, what would happen if someone was actually given an opportunity to, if they were in hell, to go to heaven? Would they choose heaven? Right? and why people end up in hell and why people end up in heaven. Classic, classic apologetic works, and he made it very approachable. He's one of those guys that, like uh, J. Vernon McGee, he puts the cookies on the bottom of the shelf. He wants us to, to find these uh, wonderful truths. And what uh, we find is that there is joy, there is peace in truly knowing Christ. And that's what chapter 15 of John is about. So we're kind of going backwards. I went to the end, the open tomb, that um, Jesus appearing to the disciples, and that John saying, you know, you need to know, you need to believe, and then you need to abide. What does that mean, abide? And we're going to look at that closer when we get to chapter 21, the epilogue. But John actually covered that previously, when he was talking about a conversation Jesus had with the disciples. And that's what we read in chapter 15. So I'm going to go ahead and read chapter 15 for you. We'll read the, the entirety of it. But I'm going to focus just on the first uh, 17 verses this morning. And we probably won't get through them. It says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is throwing uh, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I, also, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. 
No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would, be, would remain, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. This I command you, that you love one another. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. Remember the word that I uh, spoke to you, that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to him, spoken to them, they would not have sinned. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that was written in their law. They hated me without a cause. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is, the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And you will also testify, because you have been with me from the beginning. So let's, let's uh, there's really two major parts um, to uh, chapter 15. Let's take the first part, where he gives uh, an analogy uh, of a of a a vine. So he gives uh, an agricultural uh, metaphor for the folks to understand. So you got to remember, Israel um, really understood this metaphor. They understood the idea of of uh, vines and, and clusters of grapes and uh, all of the goodness that comes from that. Um, in fact, at the time that um, this was written. Uh, in, 33 AD, and this was written, or this was spoken on April 2nd or April 3rd, 33 AD, right before Jesus' crucifixion, the, uh, the Jews had um, restored nationalism. So the reason they're called Jews is because they were the remnant of, of Judea, the tribe of Judah that was, uh, had absorbed Simeon, and of all of the 12 tribes of Israel, 10 of them had been conquered by the Assyrians and destroyed. And they never reemerged as a distinct people group after that. They, they, they came back as Samaritans, which we understand Samaritans still had uh, an association with the uh, 12 tribes and the law of Moses, but they became corrupted because of uh, the resettlement that the Assyrians did. What they did is they mixed different religious practices in order to keep the people um, basically contained, right? So they wanted to make the people happy. So they mixed all these different religious practices together. And what happened was is that the, the, when they resettled the land, the people were getting eaten by lions. Lions came in and they said, oh, well, we must not be appeasing the god of the hills so they brought Jewish priests back in, uh, or Hebrew priests, and, and they mixed them in, and that's what became the Samaritans, right? So ten tribes were completely destroyed. All that was left was essentially the tribe of Judah and Simeon. Simeon had been absorbed into Judah at that point. Nebuchadnezzar, great Babylonian king, came in and destroyed what was left of the Hebrew peoples. And in the process of that, he totally destroyed Jerusalem, um, destroyed the temple that was there, took all of the artifacts that were uh, remnant in that temple off to Babylon, and took the uh, elite, the, uh, the upper class, as well as the, the priesthood, and uh, some of the common peoples as well, and took them captive into Babylon, and they were there for 70 years, approximately, before their freedom was restored under King Cyrus, Persian king. And so we read about all that. We know that from extra-biblical evidence. We know about it from the, the prophets and what's written to us by Jeremiah, who was there in that day when that happened. 
and some of the other prophets, Daniel, that spoke about this. And when they resettled the land, they were given a, a derogatory name as a people group. They were called Jews, short for Judeans. That these were these conquered people that came in and were allowed to resettle the land. And the Persians, some of them didn't like it, and, they, and you read about that in Nehemiah, when uh, this group of, of uh, returnees came back and tried to rebuild the wall and rebuild the temple, which we get in the we have insight into that from the minor prophets, what was going on then, as well as from Ezra and Nehemiah. They weren't, they weren't favored among the people. Well, as that time progressed from the time of being able to reestablish uh, Jerusalem, the wall and the temple, until Christ came, which is prophesied in Daniel, these people reemerged uh, with a nationalistic fervor. It happened as a result of the Greeks. The Greeks uh, ended up conquering um, the Persians, and the Greeks were then replaced by the Romans. And we understand that um, when the Greeks came in, Alexander the Great had a, a, a strategy where he would, rather than resettle the people like the Assyrians had done, he actually did what the Babylonians did and actually sucked them into the Greek culture. And we still have that very prominent today. And you'll see that part of the, the Old Testament is written uh, in the Greek language called the Septuagint, and it was part of that resettling and immersion that happened under the Greek rules. Well, at, there was a, a, a Greek um, ruler, Antiochus Epiphanes IV, that came in and he really did not like the Jews, and so he tried to uh, destroy them, uh, make them nothing but captives, and he defiled the temple that had been rebuilt and actually sacrificed a pig on the altar and did all sorts of things, set up uh, uh, false gods in the same place that uh, worship of Yahweh had been occurring. And that caused this uh, rebellion called the Maccabean Rebellion. The Maccabees came back and they fought against um, Antiochus Epiphanes uh, and they retook the temple and they reconsecrated it. We know that today as Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication where they rededicated the temple. That religious fervor, fervor, I'm not saying the word right, but fervor, there it is, um, led to a really strong sense of nationalism, right? And so when they rebuilt the temple under Herod the Great, and they did this really ornate um, temple and temple mount, which still part of it survives today in the Western Wailing Wall, You'll actually see part of the Temple Mount that was built by Herod the Great. They took and they put this grapevine right over the entrance to the holy place. In other words, as you're coming into the temple. So if you look at the way the temple is set up, there is the outer court, and they would come in through the outer court, and there would be the court of the women and the court of the men, and then they would come into the holy of uh, holy place, and there would be the altars there, and then behind that was the holy of holy place, right? Well, it just so happened that because Passover was a time when a lot of pilgrims would come in, and they would want to go up to the Temple Mount, and they'd want to be presenting their sacrifices, that they actually left the gates to the holy place open all day and all night. So Jesus is coming with his uh, apostles after this meal, uh, they're at probably the upper room at Barnabas' house, and they're walking through the city of Jerusalem, come across the Temple Mount on their way uh, to the Kidron Valley, on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, and they go right by the temple, and they look at that entrance to the holy place, and there's this really ornate golden grapevine. The, the Jews understood that they were God's special vine, right? And we read about that, actually, in Isaiah, for example. We read about it in Jeremiah, too. Um, let me uh, take you to uh, Isaiah, chapter 5, parable of the, of the vineyard. Isaiah, chapter 5, reads this. Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, <clears throat> and 
planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it, and also hewed out a, a wine vat in it. And he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there uh, to do for my vineyard than I have not uh, that I have not done for it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled ground. I will lay it waste. <clears throat> it will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. And I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. He thus looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. So if you're this remnant of Judah, the Jews, um, who is this vineyard? It's them. It's this special people. And when I say this uh, religious fervor had rebuilt this strong sense of nationalism, which we call Zionism today, um, that, that was there because they're God's chosen people. And they thought they were special. Even though when we read, God's being very critical of this chosen people. They weren't chosen because they were exceptional. Because they were better than the nations around them. And the word for nations is ethnos, which is often translated Gentiles. So everybody who's not Jew is a Gentile. That's because you're the nations. We're the nations. I'm among the nations. I'm not of, of Jewish descent. Um, and so it's not because they were better. It's not because they were uh, in any way good or distinct, but because God used them to bring himself to the world, to the nations. It was God working through them, and that was the, the nature of their calling. That's why they were chosen. But they weren't special. But this, this Zionism, this national fervor, um, had so consumed them that it became uh, a, a zeal that we saw in the Pharisees, a zeal for their distinction in the law, how they were special. And Jesus had nothing good to say about that, if you recall he was talking about to the Pharisees. He said, you're like whitewashed tombs. Really pretty on the outside. Nothing but death on the inside. Right? That's, what, that's what was going on in that day. When they built this really ornate grapevine, they built it because they were the vine. What does Jesus say? He's walking through, he's going through the Temple Mount, and he's got his people with him. And he wants to tell them what it really means to remain in him. To be connected to him in such a way that our total vitality comes from him. Our very eternal life comes from him. It's not something that we have. It's not even something that's added to us. It's something that we have as a result of relationship, of connection. So he's going through and he says, I am the true vine. He immediately dethrones Israel. Well, you can imagine the nationalists of that day were really ticked off when the king comes and says, it's not you, it's me. And that's exactly what was going on, and that's exactly why they crucified him. He said, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. That's the context of what Jesus is talking about. But now he wants to help, help these people understand, the Christians, those that would tell the world about Jesus and his resurrection, he wants to help them understand what that connection, that communion really looks like. He says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, the Father, takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. It's all about life. See, God has no time for death. He has infinite amount of time for life. He is so committed to you and to me that he is willing to go to the very extent of the universe to bring us life. And to have us participate in his life. That's what that's about. And he says, you're already clean, already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. In other words, he's been sitting here telling them throughout his whole life. 
right? And it actually started in his childhood. So if you go back to some of the other Gospels and you read about Jesus' early life, which very little is given about him, we know that he was always about his father's business. Right? When he was 12 years old, before his bar mitzvah, where was he when his family went to Jerusalem on one of the feasts and pilgrimages? He stayed behind to hang out in the temple to listen and debate with, to debate with the teachers. That's who Jesus was. He was always about the Father's business. He was always connected to the Father. And he said, you know, I've been telling you this from the very beginning, and I've been showing you this. So some of my favorite miracles of Jesus. Pick your favorite miracle. Right? Maybe it was water and wine. Um, maybe it was raising the um, widow's son or daughter. Um, you know, all of those are great miracles. My favorite is when he touches the lepers, right? So the lepers, um, they have a, a skin disease, actually a neurological disease, that um, causes them to not be able to feel pain. So they can get infections really easy, they can uh, injure themselves and not be aware of it, and it's a degenerative disease, and ultimately it consumes them, and they die. And um, it's communicable which means that those that hang out with lepers can get leprosy. Jesus would actually touch the lepers to heal them. They'd come and they'd say, heal me. He didn't just speak healing. He actually touched the leper to make him whole. And Jesus was not made unclean. So the lepers, when they were walking down the street because they had this communicable disease, they'd have to yell out, unclean, unclean. Because anybody that would come into contact with them would become unclean. And they would have to go through a cleansing ritual and practice. And um, the priest had to approve that they were not contaminated and all this stuff. Because contamination went from the unclean person to another person. But Jesus said, You're not, I'm not made unclean because of contact with you. You were made clean. Right? That helped me understand what it is that Jesus is doing for us. I uh, was part of a, a race one time. I know you look at me today and say, that guy couldn't race, but I actually used to do that. And my team of um, people in this race, we called ourselves uh, the Untouchables. And the reason we called ourselves the Untouchables, it was not after Elliot Ness. It was because we all recognized that we were unclean. I am that leper. And it was because Jesus chose me. He was not changed. Just like God was not changed in the garden when Adam sinned and Adam brought death to all the descendants of humanity. God was not changed, but rather he came and changed Adam. And it starts out with he closed Adam. And we understand that that was the beginning of a redemptive process, that God was going to redeem that which was lost. And that's what Jesus did. He actually not just touched the leper, he touched me. He touched you, and it's personal. And that's what being connected to the vine is about. It's personal. And it's about God bringing life, not death. So you would expect that if you're connected to the vine you're going to be producing fruit. You're going to be showing evidence of life. And he goes on, he says, abide in me and I in you. So again, it goes to this communion that um, is necessary, one, for our life, but it's also necessary for our joy, for our wholeness, for our peace. Right? Peace um, is often, uh, the word in Hebrew, it's the word shalom, and I love the word shalom because shalom is not... The, the way that the world understands peace because peace in the world means a cessation of hostility and we talk about peace in the Middle East and they're going to bring the Palestinians and the, the uh, Jewish nation together and maybe the Iranians and uh, maybe the Turks will get involved and the Saudi Arabians and all these people will get, a, get together at the table and they'll declare a cessation of hostility Israel will have a right to exist a cessation of hostility that's not peace what peace is, in shalom, is it's according to God's design. It's the way he intends it to be. You know, you look at the world and you say, man, that's not the way it's supposed to be. Because you have an innate sense on the inside of what it's supposed to be. And that ain't it. Right? 
Communion with God is what it is. It's the person, not the place. It's the person of Christ and communion with him that actually gives us that joy and that peace and that wholeness and that ability to participate in life. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Jesus just dethroned the Jewish kings, the priesthood, the traditions of men. He looked at that great vine, he said, it's not about Israel, it's about me. I am the vine. And then he goes on to say, you are the branches. He just made salvation available to everybody. If salvation is in Christ, you know, when we read through uh, Psalm 118, and it says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. It's not about the sun coming up. It's about this day when Jesus would make it possible for us to come into communion with him. That he is the vine and we are the branches. That we actually get our life from him. That eternal life is possible. That's what it means when it says that the, the curtain uh, that separated the, the mercy seat of God, the holy of holies, from the holy place where we would offer prayers, which is represented by the incense. And we would have the bread of life in our presence and the light, the illumination of God in our presence. Right? When that curtain is torn, it's torn from top to bottom, not bottom to top. And that that was what Christ did on the cross. He actually made this possible. This is what it's all about. This is the day. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So, Anybody who thinks that they can add anything to their salvation, he said you can't do anything. The branch can do nothing by itself. It has to be in communion with the vine. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. They gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. So he's giving a very practical agricultural example of that there is only one way to the Father. He had already made this declaration earlier. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Right? So here he's now saying, this is what it looks like in an agricultural model. If you're connected to the vine, you have health and life, and that life manifests itself in fruit bearing. And in fact, inside of that life is the seed of, of further life that we get to share this with others, and they can be connected to the vine. But if you're not connected to the vine, guess what? You dry up and you fall off. And in the end, what they do is all those dead branches are gathered up and thrown into the burn pot. I do that a couple times a year. I don't know about you guys. I'm able to do that because I live out of town. Um, that's that's uh, for those who are uh, struggling with the annihilation versus uh, uh, eternal punishment in hell argument. This would argue for eternal punishment in hell. There is a burning that happens. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Now this is the second time, this is the third time that Jesus has actually said this. He said, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. That doesn't mean I'm going to ask for a Mercedes, right? That's the worldview of the world, materialistic. Rather, this is the person. If you're in accord with Christ, if you're connected to the vine, what are the things that you're going to be asking for? You're going to be asking for fruit. You're going to be asking for um, life that you can give away. That you can participate in his mission. Not that you have any life in yourself, but that you can participate in the mission of Christ. And in fact, this is actually a call, not just to discipleship, but a call to an evangelist. Right? We are all responsible for how we live in the world and how we share that which God has done for us. And that's what this is about. He says, 
Um, whatever you wish, it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. It's all about fruit bearing. And so prove to be my disciples. Now, how, how do we know that we're disciples? What is, how does the world know we're disciples? Not how do we know. How does the world know that we're disciples? Bearing fruit. Pardon? Bearing fruit. Bearing fruit. And what does that fruit look like? Being in accord with Jesus. Yep, it looks like accord. It looks like uh, obedience. It looks like love. It looks like the very things that Jesus demonstrated in his life, that he was always obedient to the Father. In fact, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, because there is no difference between us. I am so in accord with the Father that when I appear in your presence, it is the Father appearing in your presence. My words are his words. There isn't a thing that I do that isn't the expression of his will. That's what it means to ask, and he'll do that, because that brings glory to God, to bear that kind of fruit. Says Jesus said in uh, chapter 13, verse 34, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So love is key to what this fruit looks like. Love and obedience. It says, just as my Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. In other words, remain. Um, just as C.S. Lewis found, it's not the, the place, it's the person. He, was, he came to that place of abiding in Christ. Of believing and abiding. That's what we are to do. We're to abide or to remain or to dwell in God's love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. So there's that obedience piece. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. So this is really key to me. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but um, the, the place I find myself in the world the other six days of the week is not like this day of the week. Right? So I'm, I'm here hanging out with you guys, and I love you all. And I appreciate that you guys at least put up with my foibles and, and shortcomings. And some of you would even call me friend, right? Um, because here's a place where I belong, and I can be whole. And I can be, um, I know that I'm forgiven by my Lord, and that you're in that same place with me. Right? But when I'm out the other six days of the week, it's not like this. And I'm being constantly challenged uh, by materialistic worldview. I'm being uh, constantly challenged in what I can say and sharing about who I truly am in Christ. Um, I have to be careful at work. I'm a representative for the uh, U.S. government, the Army Corps of Engineers, and I'm in a position of authority. So I have to make sure that I don't, um, that I am... Uh, very pluralistic, if that makes sense. That I'm very tolerant. That I'm not going to um, say something that might be offensive. Now, it's interesting. Tolerance means that um, your view is intolerant, right? So, uh, as a Christian, that's that view is is considered intolerant because I'm asserting that something is true. Um, and yet, that's where I find myself six days of the week, and that's really hard. And that can steal my joy. And Paul knows about that. So I read in Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. So here's Paul. Paul's one of those guys that, you know, when he became uh, a Christian, he didn't become a Christian easily. God had to basically knock him off his high horse and uh, help him see that the zeal that he had for God was really about Jesus, which was a big surprise to Paul because he thought it wasn't about Jesus. He thought it was about the law. And uh, when Paul got knocked off his high horse, it took him a while to, to get back up. You know, we read about how he uh, immediately shared in the very congregation that he previously persecuted, but then he withdrew for 14 years in a time of study, in a time of going to seminary. Um, Paul was a student, a lawyer, so he was really concerned about that. He, when he writes to the Galatians, so here he is on a missionary journey, his first missionary journey, he goes into the area of Galatia, which I can show you on a map, but we won't worry about that right now. Um, and he's going into an area that's very hardened against 
Christianity, and yet he finds people coming to faith there. And, uh, and it's a very trying journey for him. I mean, at one point he gets beat up and left for dead, right? Um, and yet he also is meeting people on this journey, like guys like Timothy, that are, end up being key in the, in the Christian, um, Christian faith being spread throughout the world. And he's writing to these people that right after he left, um, Judaizers came in that wanted to say, no, 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 no. You got it. You can't. It's not just Christ. You got to have Christ and the law, right? And so he's worried about these people coming in and putting the law, which is a burden that nobody could carry on their back, right back on them. And so he's writing to them, saying, you know, if anybody uh, declares uh, a Messiah to you other than Christ, you know, he's cursed. And he goes through this whole argument about how Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that um, light is in him, right? Just like John was doing. And he gets to the end of this, and he says, uh, in chapter 6, verse 9, he's speaking specifically to us, to the church. And he's speaking specifically to um, those that are striving to bring the gospel to lost people, right? He says, let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. If weariness was not a concern, Paul wouldn't have written about it. So when we read about being connected to the vine, about being immersed in God's love, and that that being the source of our joy, we need to understand that the world is working against that. It's trying to destroy our joy. It's trying to steal that peace, that shalom, that God so um, God won at such expensive of a price. Right? That's what's going on. That's the battle where we find ourselves. And this morning, I'm making an assumption here. I'm making an assumption that everybody in this room knows Christ. And that they know him in this way that we're that we're talking about here. That they know him more than just in their head. They believe and trust him for eternal life themselves. And that you're in the same place that I am. You're in the battleground. And we're going to go in and we're going to celebrate and there are hopefully going to be a lot of people that have never heard the message that death was conquered. That I no longer have to fear. That my fears uh, are not based upon the one who can destroy the body. But being in fear of who God is and his awesomeness. And that's not a fear of loss, but it's, it's a, a total respect of that which he has done, that he is truly the author of life. Right? So we're going to go in there, and we're going to uh, be part of Bob's sermon, because we are those that are hearing with the intent of loving, of obeying, of sharing with the rest of the world. We are those that, he says, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. That's what we are called to do. And that doesn't mean that necessarily that we physically throw ourselves in front of the bus, but it means that we give up that which we hold dear in this world for that which God holds dear in his kingdom. And that's what we're called to do. So I want to encourage you, don't grow weary in doing good. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially yes. those in the household of faith. Yes. So that's what we're about this morning, and I took a couple minutes extra, but let's uh, let's go ahead and close here in prayer. Uh, there's a lot more in chapter 15, and we'll move through it next week, um, Lord willing, with the carries. Um, we're just so thankful for what he's done for us this day. Lord, we, we thank you truly for who you are, that you are our Lord, and that um, you chose us, not because we were special, but because of who you are, your great love. Lord, um, that that transforms our life. We understand that that is the, the message that goes out to the world that is transforming, that your spirit speaks through us, and that people are won over by who you are, not by our eloquence or our words. Lord, help us be faithful and true to you 
Help us to stand in your love. Help us to abide and dwell and remain in you, Lord. Lord, give us that strength. Lord, help us not be discouraged. Help us not be um, distracted. All of those things that can occur, Lord, but help us to, to stand when, uh, when the battle is, is at its fiercest. Lord, we thank you for all of this. We thank you for your love for us, your provision, your protection, your incredible laying down your life in service, washing our feet, and then going to the cross. Lord, uh, we thank you for that. We ask that you be with Bob this morning. We ask that you uh, help him be an effective witness for you and help us be effective witnesses. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all this. In your name we pray. Amen.